This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the Port Aransas Whooping Crane Festival, February 22nd through 25th, 2018 in Port Aransas, Texas. Come see one of North America's most spectacular and most endangered birds in their traditional winter home along the Texas Gulf Coast. Visitors can expect workshops and seminars, birding and nature tours, and trips to see the world's last naturally occurring population of whooping cranes with experts from Aransas National Wildlife Refuge, Wood Buffalo National Park, and more. Online registration ends February 19th. For more information, go to whoopingcranefestival.org. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I have a a small favor to ask of our listeners that is not necessarily related to birds. Uh, We have seen a lot of growth in listeners in the last few months. It's been very exciting and we're sort of at the point where we are we're interested in exploring some of our hosts advertising options i know i know ads yuck but um a few ads here there will definitely help us cover various costs for the podcast making sure contributors have good equipment uh, compensating those of us who work on this for the time it takes to produce it you know how these things go so they want some demographic info on our listeners and we need 250 people to fill out a survey an ad survey i'll put the link in the show notes it is survey.libson.com uh, slash birding it does ask for some detailed information and, and i totally understand that people are sort of less inclined to give some of that um it does request an email but that email is not connected to any of the answers that you will give and you'll note that you actually don't even have to use the email even though it asks for one you can skip that part um, so thanks in advance for for doing that and uh, we'll try our hardest to make sure that if we do have ads that they will be relevant and not obnoxious uh, and also in news of note, you might remember an interview I did last year with Jonathan Mayrav, uh, the Israeli birder who created the Champions of the Flyway Bird Race. It, that is episode 0105 if you want to go back and listen. Uh, Champions is not only a phenomenal event, but it also raises a lot of money for BirdLife International to combat unregulated bird trapping and hunting around the Mediterranean. It's one of the real issues for migratory birds in the old world. The ABA has been interested in putting together a team for for several years now. Uh, We haven't been able to do it until now. We did it this year, and it is the ABA Leica Subadult Wheat Ears. They'll be running in the competition this year. They are a group of young birders, though I I know that term can kind of be applied broadly. I have been called a young birder, and I I don't know if I am anymore. But in any case, they they are legitimately youngish college students, and they all have connections to various ABA, Young Birder programs, camps, and competitions. They will be applying those skills to the world of weed ears and confusing Aquila eagles. So they are raising money. That money goes to the Champions Conservation Partners this year. It's BirdLife Serbia and Croatia. Very good cause. You can go to their Just Giving page and throw them a few bucks if you like. Uh, The link is in the show notes. It's a long URL, so I'll just send you there. You can also find the link on the ABA blog. On the show this time around, it it feels like birding has been in the news a lot lately, from Jonathan Franzen's essay in National Geographic to introduce their Year of the Bird to a really nuanced and and great take on owl politics in the New York Times. I'll cover both of those in the last part of the show. But first, Dr. Emily McKinnon is a movement ecologist and ornithologist. What that means is that she is doing some fascinating work on bird migration and nomadism, focusing a good bit on the endearing little snow bunting. I'll talk to her about the Canadian Snow Bunting Network after this week's Rare Birds. (laughs) 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of January 2018. We have a few first records to report, one of which is a very good bird for the ABA area. In Nova Scotia, a kelp gull in Dartmouth is the province's first record and Canada's third. Interestingly, Canada's second record was in Newfoundland in 2016, so yeah, it's hard to find any sort of pattern for kelp gull. It is it has truly been seen all over the place over the years. It has a really interesting history in the ABA area. They were breeding for a while in Louisiana in the 80s and 90s, also in Mexico, the result of a, a mini invasion. Though they began to interbreed with herring gulls before too long, uh, it's a tough ID made even tougher in recent years by the influx of lesser blackback gulls in North America. In any case, it's a great find and a small window into this bird's rather mysterious pattern of vagrancy. In California, a tropical perula has been present for the better part of two weeks in Orange County. This would be a California first. The bird is on private property, but local birders have been very diligent about arranging trips onto that property to find the bird. It is still being seen. In Maryland, a black guillemot was seen in Ocean City. This would be a first as the only previous record for guillemot on the Maryland checklist is uh, guillemot spa, though let's be honest, that was, that was probably a black. This bird coincides with a big movement of alcids down the east coast in the last week. Lots of razorbills with a few dovekey and thick-billed murres mixed in. And in Georgia, a pair of apparent trumpeter swans were seen in Jones County, a state first. It's another data point showing the impressive success of the reintroduction effort for this species in the Great Lakes. Trumpeter swans are increasingly found in the winter in the southeast, and it is most likely that these birds are coming from that Great Lakes population. They are doing very well. It's a really great conservation success story. That is your rarity focus for the period. For all the birds I didn't mention, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. You can also get up-to-the-minute information on noteworthy birds around the ABA area at our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare. It's that time of year when Arctic birds are moving south into the populated parts of the continent, and citizen scientists are there to meet them, trap them, and use cutting-edge technology to track their movements. It's a testament to our interest in nomadic tundra birds that that could actually apply to a couple different projects, but this time around we are talking about snowbuntings and the Canadian Snowbunting Network. Dr. Emily McKinnon is a researcher at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. She is a movement ecologist and administrator of the Snowbunting Network, and she's here with me to talk about the the project and some of the cool things they are finding out about snow buntings. Welcome, Emily, and thanks for joining me. Thanks very much for having me on. The Canadian Snow Bunting Network is not necessarily a new initiative. It's one that's been going on for, in some capacity, for many years. Can you talk a little bit about how it came about? Well, I think people uh, in, were interested in banning snow buntings, um, you know, way back, uh, just in the early days of banding, uh, because you can trap them in these walk-in traps. It, during the winter months. And so there's been um, quite a, a long history of just banding snow buntings during the winter months. It really got formalized into this network only in probably the last um, you know few years um, where we started to actually collect more detailed measurements and sort of try to bring all these people who are banding snow buntings uh, you know, at their own sites, bring them more together uh, in a network. So it's we have a, a lot of data going way back but we have really detailed data from the last few years from since we've formalized this network. What sort of prompted this interest in formalizing this network? 
Well, I think Oliver Love, who is my postdoc advisor um, and who really uh, took the lead on a lot of this stuff, he's at the University of Windsor, and he was working up in the Arctic on snow buntings. And um, he was really concerned uh, with the snow bunting population declines that the Christmas bird counts have documented. And this is something that um, there was some... Uh, papers published on uh, just sort of white papers by Audubon showing that they had really declined during the winter at the Christmas bird count. Uh, and then Ollie was working on them in the Arctic and looking at things like breeding success and trying to get a handle on what was going on with them in the Arctic and seeing all the changes that were happening there. He was thinking that we needed to have a more formal uh, network and a more formal collaboration in the winter to try and get a handle on whether these declines were actually real declines or were the birds moving uh, outside of the areas where we could find them. Right, because snow buntings are so nomadic, we often think of them as here one day and gone the next day. You know, if you're looking at just Christmas bird count data, you could have a year where you have hundreds of snow buntings on the count and next year you have, you know, none. They could be somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what's really interesting about them and trying to get a handle on the population numbers when you have a bird that's apparently just moving in and out of your range is really difficult, especially when we don't know what it is exactly that's predicting when they're going to be there or not. Um, so we can't really account for those other environmental factors that might be causing them to not be there one year. Um, so we kind of need to know more about what's driving these movements in and out of range before we can say, well, are the birds really gone or have they just stayed further north and we're just not counting them anymore? You talked a little bit earlier about the, the traps, the walk-in traps that people use to capture these snow buntings. When we think about banding birds, Keeping track of birds, a lot of us meeting think of mist nets, mm. you know. These snowbunting network uses these interesting traps. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, well, I think this is why it's such a popular activity because, you know, really anybody can get involved. It, mist netting and, you know, extracting birds from a mist net requires quite a lot of training and skill and, you know, it's quite fiddly work. I mean, these walk-in traps are basically kind of like a, a chicken wire kind of stuff. Um, you know, they have a little opening and they're baited with some cracked corn and buntings love cracked corn or some places they use millet. Um, and the birds will walk in and just not be able to find the exit out again. And they'll just happily gorge on corn in the trap. Uh, and once you've got a few in there, maybe a dozen, uh, you can just go and open the top and basically pull them out. Um, it's actually really easy. And the snow buntings are very, very um, easy birds to handle as well. Like they're very robust. They're out there already in the coldest weather. I mean, you know, they're um, very calm to handle. So kids can get involved with this. Um, school groups sometimes do it. There's some schools in Ontario that do it. Um, so I think that's why it's so popular, because it's a really accessible way to ban birds. You found a lot of really interesting things about snowbunting biology based on just based on, you know, taking these detailed measurements of these birds. What are some of the things that you have found out about how these birds are using the landscape? Yeah, well, it was it's just such an amazing data set because we have something like over 40,000 records of individual snow buntings. And many of them, we have weight information and wing length. Uh, and we can also age them 
quite well and sex them quite well uh, based on plumage patterns. So it's really nice. We can have these groups of hatchier males and hatchier females and the adult or after hatchier females and after hatchier males. And we can kind of look at the ratios of these different groups and look at size. And basically what we noticed was that there are certain sites that are always catching more females or more males, depending on where they are. And it was a little bit of a latitudinal pattern. So we thought at first we were looking at something like the Junko situation, where there's a differential migration by sex, and that the males and females are actually migrating different distances. But it seemed like it was a little more complicated than that. So we started to dig into that with the measurement data to look at the size of the birds. And what we concluded, and this is just based on all of this amazing banding data, was that the males, which are slightly bigger, are more able to handle uh, more harsh weather. So more snow on the ground, more snow falling, colder temps. They're bigger. Yeah, that makes sort of intuitive yeah, sense. Yeah, so they can hang out at those spots. They're not actually really saving any migration distance. So that there may be in some cases a little closer to their breeding sites, but that kind of like falls out in the wash at the end of the day. It's really not that big of an, of an advantage for them in terms of getting to the breeding site earlier. Um, and then the females, which tend to be smaller, tend to be more common at the warmer sites with less snow. Um, so they sort of are segregating themselves by sex, but it's mostly a factor size, not necessarily on our, uh, reproductive biology. That's really interesting. Some of the more recent studies that you've done have had to do with actually banding these birds with sort of geo trackers mm. using this really ingenious system called MODIS system. Can you explain what MODIS is and how you have used it to to track these birds? Yeah, well, it was it was really fortuitous that uh, you know we were really interested in trying to figure out what the buntings were doing in the winter in terms of these movements, right? Like, how far are they going? Where are they going? How quickly can they adjust if the weather changes? Uh, and then at the same time, this um, system called MODIS, which is um, the MODIS Wildlife Tracking System, really just expanded dramatically. Um, particularly in southern Ontario, where a lot of our bunting banders were. And what this is, it's an automated radio telemetry system so that they were receiving towers spread out all over the landscape um, that are passively receiving information from any radio tag um, that goes by. Uh, so we can put these specialized radio tags. They're basically kind of like a souped up regular radio tag. We can put as many as we want out on snow buntings and any of these towers on the landscape can pick up our birds, um, which is pretty neat. And so we started doing this to try to get a handle on these movements because they're too, the movements are too far for us to really be able to follow the birds by hand. Um, right. And they're too small for us to use something like a geolocator, which is quite coarse resolution. Um, so this really filled like a, a, an important gap for us in terms of the amount of tracking that we wanted to do. Um, and Southern Ontario is just covered with these towers, which is just amazing. Uh, so we can pick up our birds moving across the landscape all over the place um, throughout the entire winter. And nobody had ever tried this before in the winter either, so we were a little unsure. Yeah. You know, the towers are mostly solar powered. <laughs> right, yeah. Because they're out in, you know, fields or sometimes they're, you know, on roofs of buildings and they're connected directly to power. But we weren't exactly sure how well it would work in the winter. Uh, but thankfully it did, and we got some really interesting data from that. So how quickly do you get that information about these 
birds location the location of the bird is it more or less real time or is there some sort of a gap yeah it's not quite real time um it depends on the tower so a lot of these towers again are supported by volunteers citizen scientists some of them are for other research projects that they have just left their towers on for us in the winter. A lot of them are run by Bird Studies Canada. So it really depends on the tower. So I don't really want to do too much analysis <laughs> till I'm sure I have all sure. the data because, you know, these points might appear in the middle of my data set. So some of them are connected to the internet. So the ones at Bird Studies Canada headquarters, for example, and they're downloaded regularly to the internet like every, I don't know, couple of days or something. Um, Others might just sit out there and not be downloaded until the spring. Piecing together all of that information does take a little bit of time. uh, But at the same time, we would never have this kind of coverage in terms of receiving towers if it wasn't for all these people, you know, volunteering their barns and their fields and wherever they're putting up these towers and, uh, you know, wiping the snow off the solar power a couple times a year. What are you finding out about these birds' movements? Are they are they moving more than you expected? Are they moving are they moving less? They're moving a crazy amount. Yeah. As we sort of thought, we we figured they were moving a lot, but we didn't really expect to see them moving hundreds of kilometers in a month. Um, oh. And that's clearly what they're doing. And so our task now is to try to figure out what environmental variables are predicting these movements. And we know even from some more analysis of the banding data, that they really seem to be in tune to the local weather conditions and that they're fattening up when different weather systems are starting to come in and food might be less Mm. accessible. They're actually starting to gain fat or they're leaner when the weather is nicer. So they're adjusting physiologically even at that spot. So they're able to, to some extent, predict what the weather is going to do? Yes. Yeah, so they're able to predict at a short-term scale, right. but also their physiology seems to correspond to long-term weather patterns at the sites where they're found, which is oh. interesting. So they're they're moving, and they're able to use their movements to adjust um, where they are, but they're also, they seem to be going to areas where the weather lo- on the long-term has been very similar. Okay, so places that they know they can find... At a, a certain amount of food. Yeah, so so it's sort of a complex story, I think, is kind of coming out of this. But definitely the movements are quite dramatic and quite fast sometimes. Um, and there seems to be certain areas where the birds uh, congregate. Perhaps the conditions are more favorable for finding food. You know, a lot of the times, you know, they might be in actually windy areas because it blows the snow away from Um, any grain that might be spilled, for example. So they tend to maybe track some topography a little bit. Um, So this is the kind of thing we're trying to piece together now. But we've we've had birds moving, you know, over 400 kilometers in a month. That's wild. Mm -hmm. So what are the future plans for the Snowbenting Network? What are you hoping to find out using this data? What What do you think you can find out down the road? Yeah, well, I think it's re- it's really important to keep looking at this bird. I mean, this is like a sentinel from the Arctic that comes right into our backyards in the winter. I mean, like, I think that makes it a really, really important bird to look at. It's also a bird that's found, uh, you know, all around the world in, in cold regions. Um, so I think it could really be an important one to keep track of. Um, and I also would like to look at this Christmas bird count data and go back in time and look at the weather. Once we know sort of the weather that predicts snow bunting movements. Can we go back to those Christmas bird counts and say, well, should the birds have been here in, you know, 2012 yeah. or should they have not based on the weather? 
um, and then hopefully project something about, you know, the future. So know whether or not they're right. moving north, whether or not they actually are declining. Um, I think that the pieces of the puzzle are all there. We just kind of need to pull it all together. And we need to keep monitoring these buntings as much as possible. What could regular birders do? A lot of these modus towers are in southern Canada. Do you have a lot of coverage in the northern part of the United States, in New England, around the Great Lakes area, where there are also a lot of wintering snow buntings? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's more patchy yeah. out there for sure. And it'd be really great to get more um, American banders involved in the snow bunting stuff. It's such a great, fun outreach, you know, project too, because it's so easy to demo for mm-hmm. kids or for other, you know, interested birders so it'd be really neat i I, i'm kind of interested in the buntings that really use more coastal Mm -hmm. habitats and if they're doing something different than the buntings that are more inland buntings do like lake shores even coasts of the ocean so i would kind of like to know if they can access different food sources there and if that might affect how they're moving in the winter but yeah for anybody who's interested in getting involved i mean um, reporting the sightings of buntings on ebird and actually mentioning if something about the sex ratio of the flocks. Um, If you look at the plumage enough, you can usually tell that that's useful information too. Um, And we look at those kind of databases all the time to sort of try and help us interpret what we're seeing. Um, So that's definitely helpful and be great to get more banding out in the uh, northwest United States too. So in the northern Great Plains region, southern Canada there too. Do you think that the decline that Dr. Love saw early on that motivated him to take on this this Canadian snow bunting project. Do you think that that was an accurate decline? Well, considering that all of our migratory birds are declining at some level, uh, you know, at least songbirds, I would say at some level that decline is likely real. Um, I also think the buntings are probably staying further north than they were when it was colder during the winter. I think that's probably also part of it. But I suspect that there might be a limit to how far north they can stay because we've got this big thing in uh, North America called the boreal forest where snow buntings don't really like to hang out. Not a lot of snow bunting habitat up there. (laughs) Yeah, so I wonder how much that could limit how far north they could stay. I mean, there are some areas, you know, in uh, Europe uh, and in Russia where there are populations of snow buntings that don't migrate at all. Um, so we might start to see something like that in, in our part of the world if the climate is changing enough that they can tolerate staying in the Arctic for maybe the whole winter. Um, I wouldn't be too surprised if we did see a few straggler snow buntings staying above the boreal forests in the tundra all winter. But as far as I know, that hasn't happened yet. Thanks so much, Emily. That was um, really cool stuff. Uh, Dr. Emily McKinnon is a researcher at the University of Manitoba. She has done fascinating work with bird migration. We didn't even mention the cool stuff you're doing with Connecticut warblers. Mm-hmm. Maybe another time. Uh, she is on Twitter at Bird Biologist. Thanks again for joining me, Emily. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. If you want to know more about the Canadian Snow Bunting Network, check out an article I wrote for Cornell's Living Bird magazine that features Emily heavily. It's available online at allaboutbirds.org. Does it feel like birds are in the news more these days? And I don't mean on our social media feeds, which, if you're like me, is all birds all the time, but everywhere else, too. I know I've said this before, but birding and bird watching really seems to be entering the public consciousness more regularly 
in the last couple of years. And not just with the the classic birders flock human interest stories about those those wacky birders chasing something unusual, though those will never completely disappear. But there's a lot more nuance in how we are covered these days, more opportunities to teach as opposed to opportunities to gawk. It's been just over six years since the movie The Big Year came out, and while it was a critical and box office flop, it seems to have wormed itself into the culture in ways that we really couldn't have expected. I have a story that I tell sometimes about traveling on a crowded airport bus between terminals in Mumbai, India, a few years ago, and uh, sitting across from me was this fellow from Oman in a full dishdasha, the traditional clothing that men wear in Arab nations, and his wife was sitting next to him in a, in a burqa, the whole nine yards, and I'm in the, you know, the kind of traditional American dress of uh, jeans, t-shirt, and a ball cap. So he started chatting with me about, you know, where I'm, where I was from and what I was doing here. And when I said that I was here for, for birding, he said, oh, like that movie with Jack Black? You know, first of all, Jack Black, unexpectedly big in Oman. And second, that is some serious cultural saturation. And in the last few months, I've been interviewed twice for Canadian publication McLean's about rare birds in the Maritimes, and I've been on my local TV station about cold weather birding on local lakes, and each time I've been struck by the sophistication of the questions, the interest in what is what is really going on, and you know why the birds are here, what they're doing, and this seems beyond the sort of typical aren't birders crazy shtick, which to be honest, there's, there's always going to be a little bit of, but it's treated more as a, as a isn't it great that people are so interested in this thing more than a isn't it weird that they do this sort of thing? And as someone who's had sort of a, a professional and personal interest in how we are portrayed in the media, that has been sort of amazing for me to see. I think there are a few people who illustrate this shift more than writer Jonathan Franzen. Franzen sort of came out as a birder, or at least, you know, in my perception of him, uh, in the 2012 documentary, The Central Park Effect, which I would wholeheartedly endorse, by the way. It's really, really great film. Uh, Franzen is interviewed and he says something along the lines of how he's sort of embarrassed to carry binoculars in the park. I, I believe the word dweeb is used, but he has become more and more unabashed about this passion in recent years. And he, you know, he's on the board of the American Bird Conservancy. He frequently writes about birding in a lot of major publications. And this month he wrote a really great essay about why birds matter for National Geographic to sort of launch their, their year of the bird. His comfort with birding has sort of mirrored this rise that I've seen. And we've gotten to the point now that this this month an editorial essay ran in the New York Times. That that New York Times, the Gray Lady, the paper of record. And the essay was about the politics of reporting owls, which is an issue that I'm sure many, if not all of us, are sort of intimately familiar with. Essentially, do we report roosting owls knowing that they could be disturbed? And this essay by Noah Comet is nuanced, is considered, it, it puts out in the world these discussions that birders have always had amongst ourselves for years, often with a great deal of heat, if not light. The difference being, of course, this time this discussion is happening in the New York Times. So our insular concerns are seen as noteworthy for the public at large, at, you know, at least theoretically. The conclusion that Comet comes to, I think, is a, is a really good one. You know, we should respect the owls, of course, but we should always be sort of aware of how owls are singularly suitable for bird outreach, and those owls in high traffic areas really can be ambassadors to the non-birding community. And now, more than ever, it's important to get people to care about birds, and it's hard to get people to care about things they can't see. It's a good point, 
and it's an important one, and it's one that I'm happy to see being made more and more often out in public. And for a community that is often teased for being behind every curve, isn't it nice to be ahead for once? The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and you can help support our mission to inspire people to enjoy and protect wild birds by becoming a member at aba.org slash join. Special thanks to Eleanor Johnson of Morgantown, West Virginia, Christina Cutbill of Duncan, British Columbia, Janet Butler of Singer Island, Florida, Patrick Marquis of New York, New York, Janica Chick of Victoria, British Columbia, Rihanna Thomas of Midford, Ohio, David Johnson of Fresno, California, and Lisa Carl of Kailua, Hawaii, who notes that she is also joining because the ABA finally brought Hawaii into its fold. That is great to hear. Welcome to all of you, and thank you so much for your support. If you want to give us a hand, leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your comments give us valuable feedback and help others find us. Thanks in advance for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeff Gordon. He's doing his part to put birding in the news in his essay, Not the Race Car Driver, My Life as a Name Twin, to be published in the next issue of Motor Trend. Technical production is from John Lowry, who was interviewed for a piece in Broadcasting Magazine entitled Bird Podcasting for Fun and Profit. Well, maybe not profit. We get additional help from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who are both featured on the cover of Time Magazine as Person of the Year, though it was that year when the Person of the Year was you and the cover was reflective, so you know, take that as you will. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, or on Twitter at ABA, the one and only ABA, a point we try to make clear in our article to be published in the next issue of the Stanford Law Review, entitled, Not That ABA, Please Stop Calling Our Office. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.